Good afternoon, brethren. Glad to be here with you. I had a couple things to rejoice about in the introductory part here of the service. I was very glad to hear Mr. Reynolds miss a beat. He, he thinks he's getting old. He's forgetting. And actually, he's still a teenager. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Uh, a party, and I think anyone under 70 is still a young man. So he, I know he is a young man. But he, he even forgets things on occasion, so that's, that's very encouraging to me. And then Rod, Mr. Rod McNair was trying to get me to uh, be realistic in the sermon, and he said I should not have any tea because here are the people out there fasting in a couple of weeks, and I were drinking my tea, and it might disorient them. But I'll tell all you people to hear this, that this is two or three weeks ahead of time, and uh, so... Uh, I'll, I'll uh, still have my tea that way I can do better with my throat anyway it works out well for me in that way well brethren we really are near the end of the age and I think most of you realize that but I know and I want to say this any of you who are newer to our church or any of you who are not uh, younger physically you probably don't get it the way those of us who are older who have been in the church a long time do because we've some of us lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War and we've seen all these things happen and it has never, ever been like this in the United States of America. And I don't have a whole sermon time to describe all that, how we've gone down, but our national pride and prestige is going down tremendously. And, you know, we've quoted... Uh, Leviticus 26, verse 19, where God said, I will break the pride of your power to the Israelites, and certainly talking dually about the time of the end, and the two greatest symbols of our pride and our national power or our military power, which is being broken because they say our military is being overextended in these wars all over the world, and particularly the two big wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we're running out of money, running out of men, running out of equipment. A lot of our soldiers are committing suicide. They're having a recent rash of suicides because they just keep sending them back again and again. And it's hurting us terribly as a nation, as a people. And secondly is our economic power. And that's really being broken. And I think you know that without me going on for half an hour. I read two or three clippings about that from the... New York Times and the Kiplinger Letter and the Wall Street Journal the other day in an office meeting. But these top analysts realize that. And they're mentioning in those clippings out of newspapers and magazines and financial letters that the American way of life is changing and we know it will probably never be the same again. Our so-called American way of life. It's going, going, gone. God is breaking the pride of our power. In a tremendous way, that pride was not broken in World War I. My father fought with General Pershing's army over in France in World War I. And I heard songs from that and heard him talk about it. And, of course, when World War II came along, what well, we used to sing, even when I was a kid, we did it before and we'll do it again. In other words, we're going to go over there and win the war, which we did. And in World War II, there was a great deal of patriotism. And it's a deep feeling that we were going to win. As Franklin Roosevelt said as he concluded his call to war before the United States Congress after the Japanese attack, he said, we shall gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. And the Congress exploded in applause. 
And frankly, as this is the case many times, a lot in the Congress did not like him. One of the leading editorialists said, we who hate your gaudy guts salute you. (laughs) They hated his arrogance and his kind of a high-handed way of doing things. You know, he used to wear this cigarette holder and go around acting very important. He was of the aristocracy. And the common man sometimes liked him because he had all the government handouts, but the others didn't like him and all the other things. But they did respect him standing up the way he did and rallying the nation. And we had a tremendous feeling of patriotism to sweep the country. We really did. I was there. I lived through it. I know and know that I know. But now we're going down and people are wondering, what's happening? What's happening to us? And the editorial writers and lots of people all over asking that question. Well, what's happening is that we as a nation and our people in Canada and our people in Great Britain and Australia and New Zealand and the Anglo-Saxon Celtic descendants of ancient Israel, as well as the Jewish people, are being brought down. And especially the house of Joseph, of course, because we are going to be the biggest We've been the biggest recipients of the physical blessings of wealth and military power. And we're going to be the biggest recipients, as God shows clearly, of the great tribulation. And so God is bringing us down. He's humbling us. He's breaking us. And He is getting us ready to be taken over. We used to think it'd be maybe everything would be sort of peaceful in Los Angeles or New York. There might be some food shortages or riots. But basically, we'd be together And then all of a sudden the planes would appear overhead and bombs would come down because God says in Ezekiel 6, verse 6, your city shall be destroyed. And that's a prophecy, not then for them, but for now. And that will happen, maybe not with bombs, but missiles or something. But in the meantime, we may have all kinds of things happen. Terrible riots and food shortages and overthrow of government. We may have the whole Southwest taken over by the Uh, Mexicans and others, and we love our Mexican brethren, we're not talking against them, but God is using different peoples to humble those of us who are the descendants of Joseph. I'm partly German, but the Germans are going to be the leaders of the United States of Europe. And some of the strongest sermons against the Nazis that I've ever heard were given by Dr. Herman Hay, who was a German and whose father and parents and great-uncles and aunts were German professors back in Germany, and many were Nazis. But boy, he could describe it. They're very efficient, and God is going to bless them and use them in tomorrow's world once they have God's Spirit, can be wonderful people. But they're very efficient at killing people, too, and putting them in concentration camps, and very efficient in, in carrying out war. So God is going to use the beast power of the Europeans. He's going to use, no doubt, the Mexicans. Maybe they will take over. They have this whole movement, as you know, called the Reconquista, the reconquering. And they've had great big public speeches and virtual riots in sections of Phoenix and Tucson and and Albuquerque and southwestern cities say, we're going to take this country back. This is our land. Well, it was their land before uh, you know, they want it back, or America wanted, and, and some of these wars after the Alamo and all that. So people have various ideas, but God is using different peoples to break us, not because they're bad, because we are bad. We are bad. We, the American and British descended peoples, have turned away from the God of heaven. 
We have turned away from the God who gave us all these blessings. We've turned away from the God of the Bible. And you read even some of our president's recent speeches and Hillary Clinton's recent speeches and others. And they talk as though God, they don't use his so words, but it's as though if you stand up against homosexuality or against same-sex marriage, you're hate mongers. They're going to turn it right around on us. We are hate mongers if we disagree with their agenda. But they hate God. They hate what God stands for. And I think most of you realize that if you read uh, the, the, the scriptures and you read what is happening in our society. So this whole liberal movement, and it's not President Obama's fault, they just got him in there to try to control him for a while, but the Clintons and the other people, whole gobs of them, thousands of them, like that believe that. The most educated people have a disdain for God. They think they know everything. They're very haughty, very high-minded. And they are coming along in that way, and we have to understand. But brethren, we need to wake up. Our country is turning toward hedonism, and there is a great push right now, as you know, to get same-sex marriage on the agenda in every state in the Union. And that will happen. And we will see men marrying men right here and men marrying women right here in North Carolina and in all the states of the Union probably within the next several years. They're pushing hard on that stuff. And they want to ordain lesbian, homosexual, perverts. And God makes that very plain, what He thinks about that. That is absolutely damnable in God's sight. That is an abomination in God's sight. And yet this stuff is being pushed at our young people. And some of you young people have heard and seen so many things in television and our media that just imply, well, you're dumb, you're out of, you're out of fashion. If you don't go along with this, you don't understand. No, you're the ones who don't understand. The sick Hollywood producers and directors and actors, they don't understand. They portray as though they know all about love and they have all these love stories. Well, I've talked to a number of people who work right in Hollywood, who is a woman in our receded church who was the personal secretary and aide to one of the top directors in Hollywood, and she told me about it. I personally talked to a lot and got very well acquainted with Mr. Dan Truitt. You know, he's the one that played the, uh, the role Rolf in Sound of Music, the young delivery boy on the motor, on the uh, bicycle, and I got acquainted with him. He was my student in Ambassador College at one time, and I know him quite well. I had him in my home for dinner. I made an extra effort to get acquainted, and he said they just put this on, and most of them are miserable inside. Most of them do not have happy marriages. They don't know what a happy marriage is. They don't understand that at all, but they project all this. And they get on these shows that some of you young people see where this actor talks to this other personality. Oh, it's so good to see you. Ha, ha, we're so happy. You know, they just bounce. All that is fake. You know that if you watch it carefully. They just put that on. And then later they may cuss each other out or go home and take some aspirin. Some of them play sleeping pill roulette, as Dan Truett told me. He says they get so miserable that they'll take a whole bunch of sleeping pills thinking they may die, hoping in a way they will die, but not wanting to shoot themselves, so they just leave it up to chance. Will they die or not die? Maybe they do die. Most of the time they don't take quite enough, so they do die, but they just play in that sense. You know what I mean? They don't care. They're play acting, and their inner core is not there. Their real life doesn't have a meaning. It doesn't have a purpose. 
So we do have a purpose, and we're at the end of an age, and God has called you and me out of this present society to know the creator of the heaven and the earth, the God that guides the sun and the moon and the stars, the God that is guiding the rise and fall of nations, and the God that I, as I have told you many times, when I came to Ambassador College, that God was guiding his servant, Mr. Armstrong, to say that later on, God would bring down the British Empire and there would be no more British Empire. He said specifically, God would take away the great sea gates, you know, like the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal and name the number. They've all gone except two now, every one of them. He said ahead of time, years ahead of time, even before he lived, he never got to see it, that the Berlin Wall would come down and those Eastern European nations would come free. So the eastern leg of the beast would be established. All that has happened. It wasn't some pie in the sky, you know, like Billy Graham says, Christ will come back sometime. And in his columns, he's published it. He says it might happen tonight or it may happen 1,000 years from tonight. That's what he says. And I've heard him say that in person. I know Mr. Apartheid and I heard him up in, in uh, uh, Santa Barbara. I think he remembers that we drove up together to hear Billy Graham just to see how he conducted his campaigns and get ideas. Tonight or 1,000 years, that's quite a stretch, you know. But I can tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ himself, because it's in the Bible, in a sense, it's clearly indicated, Christ will not come tonight at all, and he will not come 1,000 years from tonight. He'll come somewhere in between, and probably an awful lot closer to tonight than a thousand years from tonight. Probably in 12 to 20 years or less. But it's not like it's some indefinite time. It's after a whole series of events that Christ himself inspired in the Bible. And those events are beginning to happen. And that's exciting. But brethren, we do need to understand. And we do need to understand that we're at the end of an age. And I hope all your brethren around the world understand that. When we see all these homosexual escapades that people get into, when we read about increasing fornication and adultery, and that's just laughed at, people living together, and now these Hollywood stars and sports stars, uh, they mention, well, his companion, meaning a woman, they'll describe her. They don't say they're, they're shacking up like we used to say, or they're fornicating. They just call her his companion. They all know what they mean by that. It means nothing to them. Fornication, adultery, so what? But it's a stench in the nostrils of God, and we've got to learn to have the mind of God and hate that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. What do the ministers of the world say about it? About 95% of them say nothing, nothing. They don't get excited about it. They just talk about sweet Jesus and about going to heaven and just accepting men your heart. They practically never talk about the real sins of the people that they need to profoundly repent of. They don't understand that. Because God has not called them. So our people must really understand, all of us, that this whole society is under attack by Satan the devil. God is allowing Satan to attack America and the British descended peoples in a special way because we are the descendants of the house of Israel. We are physical Israel. And our people have been so mixed up, they don't even know who they are. They don't know that we're the descendants of Israel and that these prophecies apply specifically to us. 
And that's why we lost the Suez-Panama Canal. And that's why Britain lost the Suez Canal, the Bab el-Mandeb, how they lost, of course, the Strait of Hormuz, the entrance to that, and the Malacca Straits and all these other great sea gates. It's all gone. And it's not coming back in this age because we are the descendants of Israel. And that's an important key to 90% of end-time prophecy. And we do need to understand and recognize that. And Satan is also attacking spiritual Israel, the church, the Israel of God. And we need to grasp that fact. And certainly God's going to come after us many times before the Passover. He begins to get after people, even in God's church, and discourage us. Try to bring us down, divide us, confuse us, get us mixed up. And I understand about people that I love, and we should love them, that some of our separated brethren and these other groups, four different major groups are coming apart right now, frankly. And we should pray about that. Ask God to help these people to understand. Ask God to help them wake up. And ask God if it's within His will to bring more of His people together. We're not going to pray against them. Just ask God to help them understand and want, if they're called by God to be part of the work, to join with us in doing the work of God. They need help and they need to be in the church that may be taken to a place of safety. Frankly, God's not going to take just everybody to a place of safety. I think you understand that. So we need to pray for these people and they need help from this attack because Satan has certainly been after them as well. And Satan will try to divide and confuse all of us And he will try to destroy the capacity to do the work. He has separated us already into over 300 different groups. And when I read that in some of these publications, and they name a number of them, I I realize that when you count all the little groups here in the little house churches, what was the Church of God under Mr. Armstrong has been broken up into about 300 different groups. That is awful. You know, back in the Old Testament, some of the prophets said, Lord, your people are in slavery. Your temple is destroyed. Our nation is destroyed. Have mercy, O God. God's spiritual temple, the church, has been under attack. And God's spiritual temple has been divided and confused and taken into slavery by Satan the devil to a certain extent. So we have much to pray about. We have much to fast about, brethren, when we understand. And I hope we do understand that. We really need to pray for one another and pray for all of God's people and that God will help all of us to get to do better and help most of the faithful ones, at least, to be part of the work before the time of the end. Turn with me, if you were, to First Peter now in your Bibles. First Peter chapter 5. A very basic scripture, but one that's very, very important. First Peter 5, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 8. God inspired Peter near the end of his life to write this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking, seeking whom he may devour. And Satan is like a roaring lion. If some of you have seen pictures where one or two movies showed a real lion in action and so on, it is pretty fearsome, and Satan is like that. Resist him. If you see something coming at you, a bitter attitude, a great upset confusion, and you don't know why it's coming on you, 
Be aware, brethren, that might be an attack from Satan. I'm not going to say it always is, but it might well be an attack from Satan. And you have to understand that individually as well as all of us collectively. And I've told you the story about how Satan attacked me just two or three months after my baptism. I won't go back, but it was something I knew finally came from Satan. And when I just prayed and fasted for two days, it just lifted and never came back again. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us not to, but into, as it is in the Greek, you don't call to the look up to this glory in the mountain somewhere, you're called into his glory, into his eternal glory. We're going to be born of God by Christ Jesus. When? When are you going to have that glory? After you have suffered a while, yes, we go through trials and tests, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God puts us through trials and tests, and we have to understand that. But we have got to be faithful, and we have got to be zealous and cry out to God for help. Now, one thing when we're resisting the devil and all these other temptations of the world, we have to really profoundly understand is the verses back here in verse 5. Let's beginning in verse 5 now this time. First Peter 5 and verse 5. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. As I've said, that's not easy to be clothed with humility. Most of us want to strut around and ask important and show ourselves off and so on. God tells you to be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That is just a basic way God thinks. He always remembers Lucifer. Very capable personality. A powerful spirit personality. A cherub. There are angels. There are archangels. And above the archangels are the cherubs. The highest level of the spirit world under the family of God. And Lucifer was one of those three cherubs. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. He was wonderfully beautiful, gorgeous music. And he uses music today to turn people aside too, by the way. He has very beautiful music at some of his churches and very rotten music, of course, to get young people all stirred up the wrong way. He often controls music. He controls the media. He controls the arts. He is the prince of the power of the air, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He controls the stuff that comes out through this earth's atmosphere. He controls those things. So we've got to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. But in the meantime, we've really got to have the fear of God. That's a key thing. Most people don't like to, oh, you're afraid talk about some terrible God you've got to be afraid of. No, I have a wonderful God that I am not afraid of, and He's my Father, and He takes care of me. And I know that, and I know that I know that. But I do have an awe of that God, and should have even more. And I know He's real, and so when I start to do something bad, hopefully it catches me, and a light goes on in the back of my head. You better not do that. That's against God's law. The fear of God 
is a powerful thing to help you. The awe, the recognition, God is there. He's absolutely there. And so you've got to humble yourself before God and really want His will and not your own and seek that God. So we've got to humble ourselves. And one of the main ways the Bible shows from one end to the other that we should humble ourselves is by fasting. And God often uses that very term to humble yourself by fasting. I'm not giving a whole sermon today on fasting and how to fast. We've had those, and that's not my purpose today. But you old, older members all remember that. People in the Old Testament, Daniel sought God back in Daniel 9, and he humbled himself with fasting and prayer and supplications. And other servants of God did that right down through time always. Moses did that back in Deuteronomy 9. He went up to see, see God the first time. And he humbled himself with fasting and took nothing for 40 days and 40 nights. No bread and no water. And then he came down and had to smash those tablets because the, the people had turned aside. How quickly people turn aside. And he went back up there a few days or a few weeks later. We don't know how much later. And of all things, he had the stamina somehow to fast again for 40 days and 40 nights. And cry out to God. And he said, I fell down to God over and over. He prostrated himself before God. God, forgive them. God, forgive them. God, forgive them. And cried out to God. And brethren, we need to do that more. I know we like to have fun. And I'm preaching heavy stuff to you today. But we're near the end of an age. And once in a while we need some heavy stuff so that we can have real good fun, clean fun, and have the whole tomorrow's world that we're part of and have a wonderful time in God's kingdom and God's family forever. So we want to have that attitude. Now, back in Joel, if you'll turn to the book of Joel, God talks about, frankly, this is talking about certain things that refer to the time of the end. It partly took place, some of that, not all of it, partly took place back then. But if you read the book carefully, I don't have time. I might give a whole sermon just on each one of these books sometime and show how they definitely are talking about the time of the end. But some had an earlier partial fulfillment, but the big fulfillment is at the end. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. That's a little hint, you know. This goes on clear to the time of the end. What the chewing locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. He goes on to describe the terrible plague of locusts and no doubt drought and famine that's coming on Israel. And other scriptures show that's going to happen right here in America and no doubt Canada and Australia and other places at the time of the end. Verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. You see, you who get drunk. So God is going to bring these things on us. Verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourning, great drought in some areas, and too much rain in others. As Amos says, some places will have too much rain and others not enough. Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Now, we are not called priests, but we, the true ministry of Christ, are the priesthood of Melchizedek, as Paul explains the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 7. We're carrying on the priesthood of Melchizedek. That is now Christ's priesthood. And so that terminology refers to God's true ministers today. Will wail, 
you ministers before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. Let the grain offering and drink offering for there withheld from the house of God. People can't give as much because they don't have as much to give in this terrible time of financial crisis. Consecrate a fast. What does that say? Just what we're doing. March the 6th, 2010. The church of God around the world will be fasting before the Creator. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Eternal. And you can see there is capital L-O-R-D, meaning the ever-living one. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Eternal is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. So what happened then was a type, but the ultimate is the great day of the Lord, described in over 30 places in the Bible, the time of God's intervention in human affairs at the time of the end. And then you go over here to verse 11, or no, chapter 2, verse 11, I mean. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His army is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is at hand, is very great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Eternal, verse 12, verse 12, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And brethren, as you fast in this day, and you sitting here uh, will perhaps... Well, undoubtedly have a different sermon on that day, but I hope you can remember this and your brethren who will be fasting at that time. Remember, part of fasting is not just to starve yourself. And I've said this many times. I don't want to have time to give a whole sermon on fasting, but the main purpose is not just to starve yourself. The main purpose is to humble yourself and to seek God, to humble yourself and to ask God, Father in heaven, I'm hungry, I'm weak. You give us just a few years. Our life is like a vapor. We appear for a little while and then we're gone. I see my strength going. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on all of us in your church. Help us to see and understand. Help us to repent. Help us to give our lives to you. Help us to utterly get rid of the self, the vanity, the arrogance that we tend to have humanly, the self-will. And just want to really sincerely seek your will. Not my will, but your will be done, Jesus said. And that's the attitude he wants all of us to have. So turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the eternal, your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. If we turn to him with all of our hearts, brethren... God may help us have a revival of sorts, even in the living church of God. And I appreciated uh, Mr. Reynolds' fine comments about the good spirit that's here. And I'm very grateful we do have a good spirit at our headquarters. I'm very grateful for the wonderful team of ministers who've helped me and helped hold up my hands even now, and now more than ever because of my, my stroke. I think some of you know and have heard I talked to the office staff just the other day. I had a kind of a second or third stroke. I think it was the third one. And I had all the symptoms of the first stroke, uh, I guess it was Wednesday night. And I just was very, very weak. 
or was it Thursday night? I get all mixed up. But anyway, Thursday night. Anyway, Wednesday. That's right. The meeting was on Thursday. So it was Wednesday night. And I felt dizzy and weak and started to fall over. And I decided to keep right on and, and not go to the hospital. Cheryl said, well, you better go to the hospital. And that's what she said at the first stroke. And I said, no, I don't like to go to the hospital unless you have to. So I didn't go. And finally, after taking a shower and almost falling down there, I, I started to go back. And then I sort of collapsed on the bed. And she said again, and then the feeling came over. That's what happened 16 months ago. And it was getting worse, and I was about to fall over. So I said, okay. So David helped me down the stairs, and we went over to the hospital. And she called ahead, and Mr. and Mrs. Ames were there at the door of the hospital. And just outside the hospital door, Mr. Ames said, let's just do it out here. It wasn't terribly cold. And we were more totally private. So he prayed very fervently for me. And two or three brethren and four were there with us, and they prayed too. And I thank you for your prayers. And and really, uh, I didn't immediately feel something. I maybe should have, but I didn't feel something. I went right on, and they gave me a brain scan and EKJ and, and you know, these heart tests and blood tests. And then they finally put me in that great big tube, you know, and they're taking hundreds of pictures. The guy told me he took 400 pictures in what they call a... Uh, I'm forgetting, MRI, yeah, MRI, and uh, so they take pictures of your whole body. That's where they discovered the stroke. Well, after all that, they said, we didn't discover anything, and I noticed, that was about three hours later, but I began to realize as they were done all the other tests and were wheeling me through the hospital to the MRI, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't feel bad now, and I decided I better go to the toilet the guy said he thought i'd fall over said no i won't and so he let me get up he followed me in to hold me in case he needed to but i began to realize that i was already better and by the time i came out of the hospital i was better than i was when i went in i was just virtually had it had been the previous day so god heard mr ames prayer and the prayers of the others who were praying there i think almost immediately but I didn't get some great surge, and I couldn't prove that to any of you, you know, when I mean, unless you perceive and have spiritual perception. So I'm not trying to prove anything to you from that point of view, but I do think God heard Mr. Ames' prayer, and he prayed very fervently. And I'm so grateful for that attitude, because here's the man who would replace me if I died, instead of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm ready, I'm going to take over. <laughs> Rather than that, he's pouring out his heart to God to heal me. And my wife, in the meantime, had called Mr. and Mrs. Apartian, and they were praying. And God heard their prayers and our prayers and, and raised me up almost immediately. So in less than three hours, I began to feel stronger in fact, about an hour or so into that, I began to think, what's going on? But I thought, well, they're taking these tests. And when I got out of the hospital, they had not given me a pill, an aspirin, medicine, shots, nothing. I took nothing, and I felt better because God raised me up. So it wasn't anything the doctors did. So they were kind of puzzled. But at any rate, God is alive. And it gave me the courage that God, I think, wants me around a few more months or years hopefully years to help, you know, surge this work forward and to have an impact on the world, which we need to do. 
But brethren, we do need to be thankful to God. He is gracious and merciful when we turn to Him with all of our hearts. But we've got to continue to do that. And if we do that, we will have more healings and far more miraculous healings than that. There won't be any question we have something when we get, you know, cancer or a real heart attack that's diagnosed and this and that. Because if we turn to God with fasting and weeping and mourning, so render your heart and not your garments. All these scriptures say you're to turn to God with fasting. And I want you brethren and you brethren around the world to know that is one way we've got to begin to do as the end of this age approaches. And we're going to be assaulted by Satan the devil. We're going to be assaulted by outside forces. Other religious people will hate what we're preaching. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they're not meaning to be mean. You know that. They just don't understand. And so we have to forgive them. Jesus said, forgive them. They know not what they do. They won't understand it. They'll just be resentful that we're attacking their wrong lifestyle. And they'll be mad at us. And some of them want to kill us. But we've got to get close to God because these things are coming. And they are coming big time and we're near the end of an age. So God's true people should cry out to God at the time of the end more than ever. Yet, for here we are, the people of God all divided into over 300 different groups. The temple of God has been shattered and it's been scattered by Satan the devil. And God has allowed it to wake us up. And as I've told you, I understand that to an extent because I was there and saw these things and saw that even at headquarters in Pasadena, we had some big shots committing adultery, committing fornication, lying, cheating, stealing, getting drunk, and all this. And I've told you stories. Some of the big shots at Big Sandy were doing that. Some of the big shots elsewhere were doing that. And some of the people who were not big shots were doing things like that in God's church. All through the church, they were just weak. I don't mean the vast majority, but it was way too much. I think I told you that at Big Sandy, I heard that some women were being beaten by their husbands. This was in the Church of God in back in 1987 or 8, right along in there. And I got up in the pulpit, being uh, not a real big guy, but I said, though, you, you're cowards out there if you beat on women. If you want to beat on someone or want to talk to you, come talk to me. And uh, I, I challenged them. And, uh, to, and, I, and then I told the women, I want you women to call me and let me know so I can visit these people and help straighten this out. And two different women called me. I heard that there were several who had that problem. And two did call me crying. They wouldn't tell me who they were, either one of them. They said, if we tell you, you'll go talk to her husband, then he'll come and beat us all the more and nothing will happen. But they wanted me to know that I was right on and they appreciated my comment. But at any rate, uh, we're living in a rotten society. So don't assume that everyone in the living church of God is an angel unawares. <laughs> I'm aware that most of them are not angels. <laughs> no, most of us here are converted, but we're not angels yet. And we're not going to be angels, of course, ever. But we have human nature. And you brethren around the world realize that people in your church are imperfect and you're imperfect. So we need to forgive one another, but we need to really get close to God. 
and not just kind of float through. As Mr. Armstrong said many times, he said, I don't even think half of you people are converted. And he was right. And later near the end, he said, I don't think more than a tenth of you are converted. I think God is preserving a tithe, you know, one tenth. And that was more on, on the mark. Probably one out of ten at that time were really converted. And now God's church is all divided into all these little groups. People, each man goes to think, well, I could start my own church or I want to do this. They split up. And what does that do? Most of them who do that are not remotely qualified to do a work anyway. And they're simply hurting the big work we could all do if we were together as a team. You say, well, you're self-aggrandizing yourself. Well, brethren, I've had enough, about three strokes now, and I could be dead tonight or right during this sermon, you know, if I talk too hard here. I know that. And I mean that. I'm not kidding. I know that. I'm just saying if Mr. Ames takes over or Dr. Winnale or Mr. Weston or Mr. Rod King or other men later on, if something happens to us older guys and the work carries on under someone else, that's not me. It's the church of God. It's the church of God. The work has to go forward. That's our life. That's our life. That's what it all it's all about. So please understand that, brethren. And... We have a good team of basically loyal men who've been willing to humble themselves and work together. And they see my human nature and they have to overcome that, you know, in the sense they see I'm not perfect <laughs> and, and uh, I've been some tyrant or some horrible thing. But, you know, we all have human nature, but we've got to forgive each other and work together. And we're doing that very, very well. And I'm very grateful for that. But if we humble ourselves, God will bless us throughout all eternity. As I've told the other men on the team, that if God wants you, Joe Brown or John Smith or whoever you are, if he wants you in charge of the work, is he going to have great difficulty in putting you in charge of the work? Is that Will that be difficult if God wants that? I don't think it would be difficult at all. You know, one man, it was Mr. Scarborough, no relation to the Scarboroughs from uh, Kansas City, but some of you older brethren, Mrs. Ne- Mrs. Uh, Murray now is <laughs> nodding her head. She remembers that some of the older Mr. and Mrs. Pardon probably remember Gene Scarborough from the Chicago and area there. And he had a sort of an unusual knack of perceiving certain things he said this is years before it happened he said you watch that joe de koch he's going to be in charge of this whole thing well joe de koch was just a local elder under me and under me was al carozo over the overflow church in los angeles and i thought there's no way i don't want to disparage him but you know he wasn't really a preacher he didn't he wasn't educated and and uh, most of you know he didn't ever write his own stuff. Other people wrote it all for him, every word. We knew that, knew all kinds of other things. He said, no, I know that. But he has a way and he has connections. He, I better not go into it and not make him look bad. But he has certain experience with certain bad guys. He'll know, he'll know how to do it. He will be in charge of this whole thing. That blue, I said, Gene, you're crazy. I'm sure I said something like that. I knew him. I liked him. And I said it with a smile, I guess. But I felt he was insane to say that this guy could possibly be over the whole work of God. And yet a few years later, it happened. It blew our mind. And yet anything can happen. 
And God allowed it to happen. When it happened, I asked Mr. Dr. Hay, whom I respected, and he was the older one and was there a little ahead of me in college. And so I said, well, Herman, I said, uh, how? why do you think God allowed Joe DeCotch to be over the work? He said it was time for the Laodicean church to begin. And unless the Laodicean church begins, Christ can't come. And he knew here is a man who didn't understand the truth and could be easily led off. And he allowed that to happen for that reason. And I think he was right. I don't think Mr. Tocott set out to split the church or bring on the Laodicean era, but he created a complete confused situation because he allowed the boys to take over, so to speak, the young men under him. And they destroyed virtually everything Mr. Armstrong built. They'd just gone all over the campus, taking his name off, taking anything special off that ever he did. They wanted to utterly destroy the last memory of Herbert Armstrong. Wow. Anyway, Christ can put any of you in a job if he wants you there. And promotion comes neither from the east or from the west, but from the eternal. Read that back in the Psalms, I think it is. God's in charge. He'll guide it over all. So none of us have to rush out and start our own church unless we're absolutely positive that God is showing us to do that and we're trained for it, ready for it, ought to do it. But if you have already a decent church, not perfect, there's never been a perfect church, but a good church preaching the full truth overall, not perfectly, doing the work overall and having the right form of government, those three things, why would you go to start your own church? Every single human being, and I could start naming some of these guys, one little guy way out west and then another guy closer to us here in the Midwest and then one down in Florida and others over the last number of years, another one in Texas. Every single one of them, and there have been six or eight over the last years who rushed out to start their own church, what has happened to them? They've gone to nothing. Most people, it's like they fell off the earth. The new people come in, never heard of them. And even most of our older people have no idea what happened to them. They just disappear. Dr. Winnell wrote this article about the mists of Ireland. Well, they, they, they kind of fall away in the mists of America, wherever they are. But they disappear. God does not use them. God does not bless their work because they are rebelling against one whom God has used in spite of human nature and against the work that is doing the work of God. And God is not going to bless anyone who does that if there is a basically decent, viable work being done. So we have to understand that Christ is in charge, but He's allowed this to help people wake up. Yet a powerful work needs to be done. And we need to cry out to God to bring more people with us, brethren. We need to pray that God will wake up tens of thousands of people out there in the world. You're saying you're getting big-minded. No, even if we had tens of thousands come, 10, 20, or 40, we still wouldn't be near as big as the work was under Mr. Armstrong. Remember, it got up to 150,000. And we're only about 8,000. So we could have 30 or 40,000 more and still be only one-third that size. So we've got a ways to go. And God may call tens of thousands later through the telecast, through the Internet, through our magazines, through the public appearances and these other things that we're doing. Ask God to help us have that impact and to reach our people. And as Mr. Rod Reynolds was saying, to give the Ezekiel warning to help these people wake up and realize... We're the peoples of Israel. 
we're being brought down. And the attack and the captivity is coming and it's coming here. It's not going to come somewhere else. And we all need to cry out to God to help our people wake up. And I, I think our black brethren, I see our friend over here nodding, but you know, the, the, the atomic bombs and rockets, they, they, they are not racist. They just come down on everybody. So if we have our Mexican brethren and other Latino brethren and black brethren and Oriental brethren and any other brethren, I guess I'm partly Japhetic, I'm partly Cherokee Indian too, you know. <laughs> but we're all mixed up, most of us in America to some little extent at least. It doesn't make any difference. We're all part of this nation and we will need God's protection when the tribulation comes on us, you know, which it surely will. So we need to understand the need to cry out to God and to get close to God and to ask Him to help us do a really powerful work. So we need to beseech God to bring His truly faithful people together. Brethren, please pray. You brethren around the world, please pray that God would bring thousands of our separated brethren with us. Some brethren He can bring back that are just out there wandering around doing nothing. They just fell away from worldwide. They're in confusion. They're hurt. They thought, what happened? Every now and then some of them come back who are just out there for the last ten years. They just wandered around. Others are some of these little groups that are coming apart and not doing a work. They can come back. Ask God to bring more of His really faithful people together to do a work. That's God's will. It's His will that His faithful people are together, not be all divided up. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 now. Ephesians. God says here in Ephesians 4 verse 1, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. So we are to walk worthy, worthy of Jesus Christ with all lowliness and gentleness, not cockiness and arrogance, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, not trying to get our feelings hurt at the slightest opportunity. We have to bear with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God wants unity. God wants His people to be together. In tomorrow's world, He's going to bring all of His people together. (laughs) And finally, in the resurrection and in the kingdom of God, which is the family of God, as we know, there will be no male or female. There will be no more black or white or anything else, tall or skinny. I guess we'll all have good figures at that time. We won't be physical. We'll be spirit beings. And God looks on that little part of our brain, the frontal lobe of the brain, wherein reside those understandings of spiritual things, the power of decision. And as we yield that to God, the spirit in man connected with our physical brain, he fashions and molds us. He fashions and molds personalities, the real you, that wants to do what the Creator says. He works for that. And then He'll give His spirit bodies and we will be totally together. We'll be one as Christ is one with the Father. One spirit and even composed of the Holy Spirit at that time. That is the ultimate goal. So God wants unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body And you know how through the whole book of the New Testament he talks about the body being the body of Christ, the church. There's one body, one spirit, 
one Holy Spirit, the Spirit shouldn't be guiding all of you in different ways. Just as you were called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. And I think you know what I mean by that, but you know, in the world they have the, they talk about the Catholic faith and the Jewish faith. In other words, one approach to God. There ought to be one basic approach to God. Not one act of faith, but that way of, of trusting in God, which we have in the true church. One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. God is in us, every one of us, if we are converted through His Holy Spirit. And that creates a oneness. We are one in Christ. And so we have to become one, and God wants all of us to be together more in His church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God who is through all and in you all. And then a little later in the book, in the chapter I mean, Ephesians 4 verse 11, talking about Christ ascending far into heavens, that He might fill all things. And He Himself gave, Christ gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Christ is the one who sets those offices in the church. Why? For the equipping of the saints. The saints need God's Spirit. They need wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all the things we get. For the work of the ministry, we've got to preach the gospel all over the world. And for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, we've got to prepare a people for God. And brethren, I'm trying to do that now more than ever. I hope that I can help all of you and your brethren around the world. I've tried to give certain basic sermons, knowing, well, I might not be able to give these sermons very many more months. I think I will. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but just, you know, it kind of gets my, gets my mind stirred up to think this, this could be my last sermon, and I want to help you understand those basic things. You've got to understand that we've got to prepare a people for God. And if we have our headquarters team here building people, helping people, strengthening people, we have our wonderful men in the Council of Elders and our ministers and our elders and deacons and leaders in the church all over and all of you brethren around the world truly seeking God and asking Jesus Christ to literally come in and live His life in you through the Holy Spirit, you will become more like Christ in everything you think and everything you say, and in everything you do. And that's what God wants. Why? Till we all come in the unity. God wants unity. If we were all unified, we wouldn't have 300 different churches, would we, <laughs> today? That's not good. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man or a mature man the perfect word perfect doesn't mean perfect the way we think of it in the Greek it means spiritually mature fully mature we don't suddenly become perfect in the sense of we're not just like God totally to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we reflect Christ in everything that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men why did I give these last two sermons I gave the first sermon on Galatians chapter 1 to 3, the second one on Galatians chapters 4 to 6. Because that part of the Bible is twisted by false preachers. It confuses people more than most parts of the Bible. 
So we don't want. But boy, when worldwide came apart, I was astonished at how many people had not fully grown anywhere near the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and how quickly they were swept aside by the trickery of men. How easy they got confused with these same old tired Protestant arguments that I thought I came out of, or I did come out of, but I thought they came out of, (laughs) but they didn't understand. They had never proved things. You here and you brethren around the world, you need to prove things to yourself. We're not here to play church. We're here to fulfill the purpose of the Creator. We want the Christ of the Bible to live His life in you. And you've got to have strength within yourselves to reflect that no matter what happens. If we're sitting here and a bunch of armed policemen come in someday and haul me away or haul Dr. Vanell away and anyone who tries to stop them, they hit you and your start, head starts bleeding and people scream, oh, it's all over, it's all over. No, it's not all over. That's just the beginning. Sorry. <laughs> we're going to have a lot more than that before it's all over. I don't mean that's going to happen, right? I'm just telling you these things happen in the apostolic age and they carried right on. Christ was real to them. Many of them had seen Christ hanging on a stake and this young, I used to say Roman, we don't know who it was. God put it in the heart of some young soldier and they had a conscript army where they would hire men from all over the world to fight in their army. So it wasn't necessarily an Italian, it must have been anybody. And God put it in his mind probably when Jesus was moaning or something, when they were beating him and cursing him and maybe he moaned and shut up! and threw that spear in his side, and Jesus screamed, and the blood began to gush out, and his head fell forward, and he died. Some of them had seen that, or they'd had dear friends who'd seen that, and later, over 500, over 500, over twice as many people are sitting in this room, saw him at once after he was resurrected, plus many other appearances to different ones of the apostles. They knew. Here was a man who was absolutely dead and he was alive again. And they had courage and faith. No, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. So we've got to grow up to the Christ of the Bible and reflect the true Christianity of the Bible, not the Christianity of the world. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, brethren, I mean chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, if you turn there, a very profound statement is in verse 6. God says here through Paul, but without faith... It is impossible to please him. You think, well, if you have love or you know the Bible, but what if you don't have faith? Without faith, you cannot please God. You've got to prove some of these things and you've got to study and meditate and fast. Why am I really here? Is this for real? Is this little tiny living church of God for real? Is this is the church of God? Are these things happening in the world? Is it all accidental? Is Mr. Meredith and Dr. Winnell and Mr. Crockett and Mr. Ames and others up here just saying the end of the world's coming and has no meaning? 
You know, it has a lot of meaning. But you've got to prove it, that the God is working on a purpose here below. And to understand that, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. You've got to know that. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And get that. We don't just half-heartedly seek God. We had better diligently seek God with all our hearts. God wants that, brethren. So I say we're not here just to play church. We're here to fulfill the purpose for which we're drawing breath at the end of an age. So let's understand that. And a lot of you are going to have to go through trials and tests before the end. Trials and tests you've never experienced before. Mr. Parting has gone through trials and tests for about 55 years as God has worked with him and, and helped him serve people in Haiti and raise up the church down there years ago and all over the world. And he's seen the hand of God in many different situations. And I've seen the hand of God in many different situations. God performs miracles. And brethren, if we as a church get closer to God, if we will fast together and ask God to do the things He's always done and wants to do and build faith in God, we will begin to have more power in the work of God. God will bring thousands more of our brethren with us, and I'm sure we'll have more miracles. As the darkness falls in this very sick society, we need to have more faith and courage in every way. Notice Mark chapter 16 now. Mark chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 14 here. Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, after his resurrection, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who'd seen him after he was risen. Even they didn't have belief. Of course, the Holy Spirit had not yet come. Even his own disciples didn't have faith as they should have had. So we have that problem today. Many of us do not really believe as much as we should. And he said, go unto all the world. That's our that's a command for you and me. Go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes, you've got to believe. And is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Or the Greek word can be translated judged. It doesn't mean condemned to death, but you'll be judged. Some will be judged later in the great white throne judgment. If they're not called, they're not called. Verse 16, he who believes, I'm sorry, then verse 17. And these signs, notice brethren, these signs, didn't say might, will follow those who believe. He doesn't say every minister and every brother in the church, but the signs will follow God's church down through the ages. In my name, they will cast out demons. I have cast out demons, and I'm sure many of our ministers have. They will speak with new tongues. We've not been given the gift of speaking foreign languages yet. They will take up serpents. That is, if you accidentally pick up a snake like Paul did, you know, at the end of his life there on the island, the firewood, and if they drink anything deadly, accidentally, obviously, it will by no means hurt them. Supernatural protection. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I have had dozens of people healed, some of them somewhat spectacularly, through my prayers. And I'm very grateful for that. 
But more people are not healed at all or they're healed much later or slowly. And part of that may be God's will. Part of it may be they do not have the faith that they should have. Maybe in some cases I do not have the faith that I should have on that occasion. But God has healed. And I'm sure all our ministers have stories where they know that people have been healed through our prayers. And I sincerely believe that with my heart. Many hundreds were healed. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Our Savior is alive. He's sitting there at God's right hand right now, watching us, participating here through his Spirit. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Christ was working with them. He's working with us. And he will work with us more if we as a team... As the body of Christ get on our knees and fast and pray and cry out to God and rend our hearts and not our garments and really let God know we mean it. We want to be His people. We want to do His work. We want to reach this world. We want to have a greater impact. And so the Lord was working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Now that's something we need more of, the accompanying signs. And I ask you, in Jesus' name, brethren, here and everywhere, please pray, please pray as we fast for those signs. We need those signs so much. Right now, we have a number of ministers who have serious health problems. We have many of our brethren who are getting older who have health problems. And we even have younger people who have terrible problems too, as you know. And we're going to come to a time soon when the disease epidemics are going to be all over. And it will make it very obvious. The doctors, mostly, are sincere. They might give temporary help, but they will not be able to begin to start to commence to handle the, the thousands who will be pouring into the hospital, just like in Haiti. They can't take care of all of them. They will have to have God's intervention. So let's get ready. Turn back to Matthew 10 now. Here, Jesus sent out the apostles in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. When he called his twelve disciples, he gave power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Notice that. Every kind of disease. So he gave that power to the twelve apostles. And then you turn to Luke, if you would. The Gospel of Luke, also chapter 10. Interesting, nice parallelism. Matthew 10 and Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. You see, a lot of people have it sort of fixed in their brain. Well, this can't mean everybody. This was just for the 12 apostles. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. 70 others also. 35 teams of young men he sent out in addition to the apostles. And they weren't even converted. They weren't. The Holy Spirit wasn't even given. They weren't converted, but God backed them up at that time. Seventy others and sent them two by two before his face. And he said, the harvest is plenty as the laborers are few. And he said in verse 8, he said, wherever you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Verse 9, heal the sick who are there. God's instruction, heal the sick. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you're to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and you're to heal the sick. What about casting out demons? Verse 17. 
Luke didn't write that Paul Christ said so, but he obviously did say so. Notice Luke 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they did cast out demons indeed. You turn back to Acts chapter 8, if you would. Acts now, chapter 8 and verse 1. Here is when Paul was out persecuting the church after Stephen's death. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, great persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial. And the church was scattered, but they went everywhere preaching the word. And apparently many leading deacons and men went out preaching who were not certainly apostles and maybe not even ordained yet. Verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now remember in Acts chapter 6, Philip was ordained a deacon, he and Stephen. But now he was being used as an evangelist, obviously. So he went down and preached Christ. So he preached Christ's message, obviously. And the multitude with one accord heeded. They listened. Why did they listen to those things that were spoken? Seeing the miracles which he did. That tells you why. Wow. They say, we better listen to this guy. He has the power of God. For unclean spirits came crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So that is the power of God. These signs were there. They listened because of the accompanying signs. Remember, brethren, it wasn't just the apostles. It was the 70 others also. It was also Stephen, you see in chapter 7. It was Philip, you see here in Acts chapter 8. Others. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we yield to God, if we cry out to God in prayer and fasting and cry out to Him for these gifts with all our heart, And if we cry out to God to give us more of the power of His Spirit, if we cry out to God to bring more of His faithful people together, He will hear that prayer. And these things will start to happen. So turn back now to Daniel chapter 9, if you would. Turn back to Daniel at this point, chapter 9. I'm sorry, I mean chapter 11. And here in Daniel 11, <coughs> and in verse 40, at the time of the end, that's us. We're going to see a lot of things happen. The king of the south shall attack the, him, that is this coming beast power in Europe. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Remember they call Hitler's attack Blitzkrieg meaning lightning war. And that same kind of thing is going to happen because the Europeans will have more mechanized equipment at the very latest planes and tanks and Polaris-type missiles and everything else and overwhelm them. And then it says in chapter 12, and at that time, at the time of the end, here when this final attack has taken place, The king of the south is provoking the king of the north, and that takes place. And during this same time period, as you know, there's going to be a seven-year treaty, which might be signed even a year from this coming autumn, letting the Jews 
offer sacrifices on the Temple Mount. That's going to be very exciting to watch. When some kind of treaty is signed letting that happen, a countdown sort of begins. And we're in the very time of the end and getting very close to those things. During that same time, if you read Revelation 12, we've had some terrible, uh, violent things in Colorado that uh, oh, Columbine was it massacre, different schools and places have had different massacres and bad people have done horrible things. But within the next several years, we're going to have suddenly a different situation. People are going to be weird. The people in Europe are going to have a different spirit all of a sudden. The rulers will have that look on their face. They're really going to come after us. And we may have more demon-possessed people killing and robbing and hurting and torturing and horrible things happening in this nation we've ever had. We'll wonder, what's going on? It will be the spirit war, and Satan has been cast down. We're living in a very exciting times. We need to be close to the Creator. These things are real, and they will happen. So at that time, chapter 12, verse 1, Michael shall stand up. Remember, there was Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael, the three cherubs. Super archangels created by God. Michael is the one who watches over Israel especially. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there will be a time of trouble, the coming great tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. And that's dual, I'm sure. Certainly God's true people and His church will be delivered. God promises in Revelation 3 and verse 10, to take us to a place of safety, to spare us this coming trial, the Philadelphians, and also it's indicated in chapter 12 of Revelation, and also God's people, Israel, will be delivered finally, although we have to go into the tribulation first. Your people will be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. What time is this? The time of the resurrection from the dead. The dead people rise up. The end. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We've got to decide, my friends, to go all out. You and me and all of us. There's nothing more important than that. If you're sitting here now, you may realize that, but don't forget it. Your favorite TV show and the Super Bowl tomorrow night and your card game and your trouble with your wife or your in-laws, that's all distracting. But the most important thing is to get right with your Creator and to have Christ living His life in you. And nothing else even begins to commence to be as important as that. It really doesn't. So we've got to get right with God. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise some to life and some to contempt or the lake of fire. Those who are wise, God grant that you and I can learn what is important and go all out with our whole being for what is important. We shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness. How can we turn many to righteousness? By being filled with and led by God's Spirit. By putting our whole hearts in this work through our prayers 
our tithes, our offerings, our helping people in the local church and others every way we can, and giving our lives every way we can. It should be our purpose in life to give our lives, to help prepare for the kingdom of God. It's an exciting thing. It's a crusade. We shall shine, and those who turn many to righteousness as part of the living church of God, as part of the work of God, shall shine like the stars forever and ever. That's why we were born. That's why God called you and me now. He could have called us later on, but now is the time where the work needs to be done. Now is the time to reach this world. Now is the time to get close to God. And as you go home tonight, you brethren here and you brethren in the churches on the fast day, and all of us need to remember that on the fast day, the fast day is not just to get hungry. The fast day is to study this word, to drink in of it, and to get down on our knees and pray to God with all our heart and all our might and just beseech God to help us, to use us, to fashion us, to mold us, to bless His church, to bless His work, to help us reach this world every way we can. These people out there are hurting. I don't think we can fully grasp the horrible suffering they're going through in a few years in the terrible tribulation. But we want to reach them with all our hearts, I hope. So let's use this as a tool. Fasting is a powerful tool to help us get close to God and do the work of God and fulfill the will of God. So let's do it with all of our hearts.